0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. If you suffer from that uh, tendency that was mentioned, uh, didn't there used to be a political organization called Militant Tendency? And if you suffer from assembly tendency, there uh, as they would say at mass rallies, there are counselors in the room who would be able to help you at the end of the evening. I think there, there are at least eight Presbyterian ministers in the room who would be able to counsel you, uh, one or two doctors, uh, nurses, <laughs> we could even bring a psychiatrist in. Um. Now, we are uh, at the beginning of a study in the first letter Of the Apostle Peter. Uh, My intention originally was to zip through 1 Peter. Uh, I've been reflecting a little on that and thought that perhaps I should slow down, Uh, but I hope I'm still sensitive enough to congregations to realize that if the mood is, please hurry up, Uh, then uh, I will get that message and I I will move along uh, more speedily. But this evening we're reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read the first uh, six verses. And this is on page 1,217 of the Church Bible, which is the New International Version, and I'm actually reading from the English Standard Version. Both of those titles are misnomers, incidentally, Uh, but that's by the way. Peter is writing uh, as you will remember if you have ever studied First Peter before, he's writing from Rome, essentially. Um, and he is uh, wanting to encourage the Christians. Uh, you'll notice in verse 13 of chapter 5, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. It's highly unlikely that Simon Peter was in geographical Babylon Babylon uh, in the New Testament tends to be code language for the city of Rome uh, which within uh, the next two decades or so would be the epicenter of waves of persecution of Christians. When Peter is writing, probably there are local outbreaks of persecution as the Roman Empire realizes that Christians are not actually Jews and so they don't fit under the category of a permitted religion. And in particular, they will not say that Caesar is Lord and uh, they want to live this counter-cultural life. The Roman Empire never realized that the best citizens they ever had were Christians. They never realized that. And it is a striking thing in history that where empires fail to realize that their best citizens, characteristically, are Christians, those empires, without exception until this day, have always come to nothing. And it's within this context of the great hope of the gospel— the great hope of the gospel that Peter is writing. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, modern Turkey, elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, There was an archbishop in Scotland in the 17th century called Robert Layton, and Robert Layton wrote about this first letter of Peter that Peter wrote it in order to establish Christians in believing, to direct them in doing, and to comfort them in suffering, and that really is a wonderful summary of these five chapters. Uh, Luther uh, comments on 1st Peter that everything you need to know as a Christian is in 1st Peter. He was, you would understand, given sometimes to a little exaggeration. But that is so much so that there was a time when many scholars thought that 1st Peter was actually A sermon preached at baptisms, Uh, so full of the basics of the Christian faith, so uh, apropos to the fact that in the first century, in the pre Christian world, just as in the 21st century in the West, in the post Christian world, Peter was teaching Christians what they need to know to be able to stand fast in any situation and under any circumstances. And it is rather marvelous that by this period, perhaps uh, three decades maybe after uh, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, and in the light of the commission that was given to the apostles to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, Simon Peter has this enormous conviction that the Christian gospel works everywhere, that it is possible to be a Christian believer under the most strenuous and difficult of circumstances, that it's not actually at the end of the day possible for the powers of this world to silence the powers of God's world, and that the word of man must eventually yield to the word of God. And so he's writing to these Christians, uh, some of them he is quite sure are going to suffer quite seriously, and uh, as we noticed last time, he begins in a way that for us, I think, would be counterinstinctive. Uh, we know people who suffer what he says are different kinds of trials in their lives, and our letters to them usually begin, I'm so sorry to hear about what you are going through. And Peter seems to do the very reverse of that. He introduces himself, he addresses them, and then immediately he breaks into praise and worship. And there is a very special reason for that. Towards the end of 1 Peter, it's always a good idea to take a sneak at the back of any book to see what the conclusion is, and then to have that conclusion in your mind as you're reading the book. And towards the end of the book, he says, now he says, the evil one goes around like a roaring lion seeking to devour people. And when that happens, two things tend to follow. One is we get deeply discouraged about our situation. And the other is we tend to look inwards and become deeply discouraged about ourselves. And so the very first thing Simon Peter is doing and praying that the Word will accomplish this in these believers to whom he's writing is, he's wanting to get the Word of God inside them to turn them outside in and inside out, because they will not find encouragements to serve Christ in the world that opposes them, nor will they find the resources to stand for Christ in any energies they have within them. But if their eyes are lifted up, if their gaze is fixed upon Christ and the glory of the gospel, then however strenuous a a spiritual exercise that is, then the Christian will be able to live for the glory of God, for the praise of the Lord Jesus, no matter what his or her circumstances might be. I happened to notice uh, one of our grandchildren this morning uh, coming out of Sunday school with her cardigan upside down, And inside out, and every instinct in me wanted to take it off, turn it the right way round, and turn it so that the outside would be outside. And as Peter looks at Christians, as he perhaps remembers his own life, he must have realized very personally that that was actually what he needed Jesus to do for him. That as a Christian, He was kind of upside down and outside in. And the the gospel narratives are punctuated with the way in which Peter's eyes are so often turned in on the question, how is this going to affect me? And his thinking about Christ turned upside down. And Christ's ministry to him constantly is to is to lift his eyes up. You remember when he had the final disastrous failure and, and with curses denied he knew Jesus and Jesus' eyes caught his eyes across the courtyard and then he remembered, didn't he? I'm sure he went out and wept bitterly, but he remembered something. He remembered that Jesus has said, I will pray for you, Peter. I will pray for you. Now what did that do to him? It turned him away from the oppression and depression of his own failure and away from the oppression of those who were around him who hated Christ to get his eyes fixed on Jesus himself. And so this is the very first thing that Peter does in in his letter. He lifts up our eyes to what God has done. He lifts up our eyes away from our own fears about uh, our circumstances and opposition to the gospel, about which we were thinking this morning, weren't we? to the glories of the gospel that that will lift our hearts. And he understands that this can actually be very hard work for us as Christians. And what an important thing it is for us to grasp that today, to grasp the, the weight of emphasis the New Testament places on the idea, you have got to learn to think hard about the gospel. Otherwise, uh, you will become uh, jellyfish Christians in the world, and you will simply be creatures without backbone, without spine, without understanding, and you will simply be swept along by the currents, whether they be the religious currents or whether they be the social currents of the world. And certainly, if there is a passage in this letter, that is calculated to put backbone into us, it is surely this particular passage. And so he begins by lifting our eyes and saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, whenever you hear that kind of thing, uh, you, you I think about my grandchildren. I think about my own children when they were younger. And I realize if, if I'm going to be able to do that, I need to know why I do it and what makes it possible for me to do it. Because these resources do not lie within me. Peter is not just kind of blurting out some high moment of emotional praise. He's writing to people who are going to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so vague, pious statements are going to be of no use. He needs to he needs to speak to them about the power of the gospel that causes us to think about our lives and to bless God for what he has done. And you'll notice uh, where he grounds this. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation that is already ready, already prepared to be revealed to you at the last time. So how are the blessings of the gospel ours? They are ours, says the apostle Peter, because we have been regenerated we have been born again by the power of god the father he has by his mighty power so transformed our lives as to bring us into his family uh, you probably know that in the new testament when we think about ourselves being children of god there are there are two different Ways of thinking about that. There's the way the Apostle Paul thinks about it, and that is that the Father adopts us into His family. And Paul is thinking about the new status that we are given. By nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now God has set his love upon us. He has, has, as it were, looked into the orphanage, and he has chosen us, as we were hearing again this morning, he's chosen us to be his children. And through Christ, he has dealt with all the legalities of adopting us into his family. And so we have this amazing new status in life. When it dawns on us, it is a glorious thing to realize, isn't it? The heavenly Father has adopted me. By nature, I'm a spiritual orphan. I may actually be, by nature, an actual orphan. I may even have lived in a house with uh, two parents and still felt myself to be an orphan. I may have had the worst conceivable relationship with my earthly father. But the one who is the true father The one whose fatherhood I begin to understand when I see what he was like in relationship to his son, the Lord Jesus. And I understand what a father he must be to have this son living in happy obedience to his every word. And uh, when I realize I've been adopted by this father, that I'm a child of God then it transforms my thinking about the gospel and it transforms my thinking about myself. Glenn Harrison, who was here recently for uh, one of these uh, uh, things under whatever title went up on the the screen there, has written an outstandingly useful book that every, every student should read, every parent should read in which, among other things, he's a retired professor of psychiatry, emeritus professor of psychiatry. I shouldn't say he's just retired. One of the things in in his book that is kind of stunning is the zillions of dollars and pounds that local governments and national governments are pouring into the lives of teenagers today to raise their sense of self-esteem. And the result, youngsters' self-esteem is hurtling downhill. Because, of course, you can't say to people, "You're a princess." You know, the, 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 the young girl to whom you say, "You're really a princess, who really thinks she's a princess. Needs to go to see somebody in a white coat. She doesn't really believe she's a princess just because somebody told her she was a princess. But you see, when the gospel comes and you understand you're you're a son or daughter of the same heavenly father to whom the Lord Jesus looked when he said, Abba, Father. Well, I didn't mean to take all that time to that because that's not the line of thought that Peter follows. But the line of thought he follows is intimately related to that. It may be you're, you are adopted. It may be you, you are a parent who adopted a child. Um, particularly if you adopt a child, let's say when that child is nine, nine, is all you need to do to go along and, and take out the papers? Is that all you need to do? And uh, the child comes home and immediately and instinctively says, Daddy, when do, we, when do we have lunch? Daddy, when do we go to the shops? Daddy, when do I get the princess dress? Have you ever heard of parents adopting a child of age who has instinctively come home that all the old instincts from the old family have immediately vanished the moment they crossed the threshold and it's been the most natural thing in the world to say to the new parents, "Mummy and daddy, no, you've, you've never, that never happens. It just never happens. Why does it never happen? Because the child doesn't have those instincts. And parents I know who have adopted children of years who have who have labored long and hard and often almost been brought to the point of despair because they love this child they've adopted, but that child still does not have the instinct to say, Daddy. I have a friend who adopted a a child when he was a missionary and uh, they loved and prayed and uh, still no instinct coming forth until one day the girl appeared at his study desk with with her shoe and the shoelace had broken. And she said what to my friend were the most magical words, words in all the world. Daddy, my shoelace is broken. If he could have afforded it, he would have bought the shoe store, the thrill. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, that dimension, not the change of status, which in the New Testament is a legal concept like justification, you're declared to be righteous in the sight of God because of Christ. You're declared in Jesus Christ to be an adopted son. You see, the marvel of the gospel is this, that this father can do what we human fathers can never do for the children we adopt. He can give us the family nature and so both of these ideas coalesce, and, and Peter is using that latter idea, that when we're adopted into the family of God, uh, he does nothing less than give us the family nature. Indeed, Peter goes so far as to say in his second letter that we've become, we have a communion in the divine nature. It doesn't mean we become divine but it means that the family disposition has been planted into our hearts it's not just that our status has been changed it's that our our disposition has been changed and it it uh, in many of our lives some of us have grown up within the family of christ and our transition has has been imperceptible. We've never known a day when we didn't love and trust the Lord Jesus, but others of us have come from an entirely different world altogether. And it has been a stunning transformation. Happened to be reading the the biography of uh, the younger Pitt, Prime Minister uh, of England. Indeed, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom when he was 24 years old, already the greatest orator in the nation, capable, in those days the Prime Minister also happened to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer, a man of extraordinary genius, and at the time a very close friend of William Wilberforce. And uh, William Haig, the former Foreign Secretary, whose biography of... Pitt I'm reading, um, includes a letter that Pitt writes to Wilberforce when Wilberforce has been converted. And it's clear that Pitt has no idea what's happened to his dear friend. He kind of hopes that things will go on the way they used to go on and that Wilberforce won't become too unbalanced because the the overwhelming impact of being born again was such on William Wilberforce. He knew he could never be the same man again. And this is what Peter is saying here. He's saying the blessings of the gospel are ours because we have been born into the family to whom these blessings belong. You don't hear this kind of thing so often these days and most of us don't in any case mix in the circles where you ever heard these kind of things. But I wonder if you've ever heard an older person comment about somebody in these words. I've, I've heard these words in my, in my youth quite often. Of course she was born into privilege. She was born into privilege. That's what it means to be a Christian. Of course, to run round the apostles, the apostle John says, the world has no idea of this. The world looks at you and has no idea who you really are. If there there are any group of people in all the world who have the right to go to people and say, don't you know who I really am? It's Christians, isn't it? Uh, We live inside the TARDIS. Looks rubbish from the outside. Oh, says John, the world doesn't know who we are. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, we shall be like him. We know we don't look like what we actually are. And what we actually are, oh, that it would dawn upon us, what we actually are is people about whom Jesus can say to his father with a smile, of course, she's born to privilege, isn't she? He's born to privilege. Now, what are these privileges? Well, he mentions a couple of them here, doesn't he? He says we have been born again, first of all, to a living hope. And then secondly, to an inheritance. We've been born again to a living hope. And every time we come across the word hope in the New Testament, we're always reminding ourselves that in the New Testament, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a present assurance of something we have not yet fully experienced. So when the New Testament speaks about Christians having the hope of glory or a hope of heaven in them, it doesn't mean the same thing as when you say to people, are you going to heaven? And they say, well, I hope so. What that makes you think is it's highly doubtful and you're not at all sure. But when the New Testament speaks about believers having hope because of the gospel, Hope is this deep-seated assurance of what I haven't yet fully experienced. And uh, you'll see how he speaks about this. He says, we have been born again into a living hope. Now, this is a world where, if any of you are classic students or students of antiquity, uh, you will have come across sayings in the writings of the great classical Authors that give you a sense of the absolute despair in the Roman Empire of the future. Not just the future of the Roman Empire, but my future. And the literature is littered with statements like this statement of the author Catullus, where he says, you know, every night the sun goes down, And it becomes dark, but it rises again in glory in the morning. But when our light goes down, it goes down into the deepest darkness, never to shine again and never to return. And here is this living hope. and still true today, isn't it? Uh, We... People mask it with all kinds of coping mechanisms. They need to mask it with all kinds of coping mechanisms. It, 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 it's no longer appropriate to go anywhere now in the public square where there isn't music. I was in a restaurant three years ago. I thought there's something really... I've been in a restaurant since three years ago. A restaurant three years ago. I thought, there's something wrong here. Do you know what it was? There was no music playing. This background noise that draws my attention away from serious thought about eternal things. That is the one thing you must not be today is earnestly serious about the fact that in three score years and possibly another score, life will be snuffed out. And nothing you have, nothing you have done, nothing you possess, nothing you are count for nothing. You think the new militant atheists, what's their hope? Imagine your highest hope is the destruction of Christianity. Oh, you want to say, don't you realize that you will be long destroyed? When Christianity is flourishing? Where is the hope? Where is the hope in the world? There is there's a hopelessness. Why is it there is so much cynicism and thanklessness and complaint? Don't you think, don't you think we are a society with all that we have that issues more complaints than multitudes of societies where they have almost nothing? And especially if they have almost nothing but have Jesus. Because he's a living hope. He is is the one who through this new birth brings us into a world that's actually full of hope. There's a future. You know, I noticed Nicola Benedetti saying children should be forced to listen to classical music. Do you know what we should be forced to do? should all be forced to spend uh, a couple of weeks in an old folks' home where there are some Christian believers. And listen and annotate. Some of you, have, maybe your sociology students, are looking for a PhD thesis. Do a PhD thesis on the difference between Christians in old folks' home and the rest of the people. Why? Why does the food not taste so good? Well, partly it's because you lose your sense of taste. But also partly it's because you've got, you, you've got nothing to look forward to. You're in the antechamber to the execution room of your entire existence. That's how you think about yourself. Where is the believer? The believer is in the anteroom, waiting for the great physician to appear and say, Mrs. So-and-so, you're next. Like Christiana in Pilgrim's Progress, when she gets the letter, you're next, Christiana. Why? Why at the end of the day? Because regeneration brings us into this living hope. Now, notice that this is not generated by any resources in me through this living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the thing that makes a difference. That's the thing that makes a difference. And you know what's really interesting is what 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 Peter it would be I think it would have been better as I think some of the translations used to put this phrase like this. His resurrection from among the dead. I think that's the nuance. It's not just saying Jesus was dead and then he was alive again. Peter's theology has taught him to understand that Jesus was there among the dead. There there he is among the dead. Have have you ever been in in Israel and gone to the, the, the graveyards They're very dead places. And Jesus is among the dead. And they're all dead. And Jesus is dead. And then there, as it were in the darkness, Jesus resurrects. Now why would that give me as a believer a living hope? For this reason. That Peter understands that We are by God's purposes in election, by God's Spirit in regeneration, by faith into Jesus Christ, which is an expression Paul likes to use. We are so united to Jesus Christ that his resurrection guarantees ours. We are so part of all that he has done because He's done everything he has done in coming to earth because all of that he did not because he needed it for himself but to do it for us. And because he attaches us to himself by the Holy Spirit even giving us the same Holy Spirit that he received from his heavenly Father. His resurrection is actually the guarantee of our resurrection because we belong to him. Yes, there is a time gap. But nevertheless, it is sure as sure your resurrection, a Christian believer is as sure as Jesus' resurrection. Well, you say, but Jesus' resurrection is past. That's the point Peter is making. But when I realize he has broken through, And I belong to him. Then the day will come when through him, as Paul says, however we disintegrate, God will raise us and reconstitute us and bring us with the Lord Jesus in glory into a new order of reality altogether. Interesting, actually, in the Acts of the Apostles, and, and uh, apart from twice in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, Peter is the only person who is ever said to use a particular expression about Jesus. In Greek, it's the word archegos, arche beginning, archegos, the beginning person, the founder. Our oldest boys went to a school where every year there was a Founders' Day, service. Who were these guys? These were the guys who, because of what they had done, because of what they had done, it was possible for our boys to be educated in that school. So they were trailblazers. They were like platoon commanders. This is the picture of Jesus. They're like platoon commanders breaking their way through the jungle in front of their men and then coming to a ravine. And unless they can cross that ravine, they're going to be destroyed by the enemy. And it so happens that the platoon commander also holds the world long jump record and he says to his men, give me that rope. And he goes backwards and he gets ready and he runs and he takes this gigantic leap across the ravine and he builds the rope bridge and because he has got over the ravine, he guarantees that all of his men will follow after him. That's the way the New Testament looks at the resurrection of Jesus. And so when I understand this, it's not just that Jesus died and rose again, and I'm going to die, and I hope I rise again. It's Jesus' resurrection guarantees mine. To use Paul's language, it's the first fruits that guarantees the final harvest. Now there's a living hope. Because you see, at the end of the day, we all live our lives backwards from the future. That's why so many people in old folks' homes are so discouraged because there is no future and therefore there is no hope. But you see, the Christian lives his or her life forwards from the future. If I know that Jesus' resurrection guarantees my resurrection, doesn't that transform my life? Doesn't that give me courage? Doesn't it make me say, it does not matter what man will do to me. I have this living hope within me through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But there's not only the living hope must move on. There is, he says, also an inheritance. So we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, and that is unfading. It's a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? Um, he's, he's saying, you know, what's the, what's the problem with having an inheritance? Well, the first problem might lie in the inheritance itself is the inheritance going to last? And then the second problem would be, it would lie in other people. Will, will somebody come and take my inheritance away? And the third problem lies in me. Am I going to be able to last to get my inheritance? Uh, says Peter, all the bases are covered here. He says, we have been... Born again, first to a living hope, but now to an inheritance that can't perish, that can't be defiled, uh, that can't fade away. Remember as a student, I was going with a, a friend. Uh, we were doing student assistantships in in Sutherland or somewhere. And we were looking around the old churches and we went into this old church. I think it was in Sutherland and uh, it was empty, and we, we were like two wee boys. Actually, we were just wee boys. We were rummaging around in the place, and I opened a cupboard, and there was this magnificent minister's Geneva gown there. I don't think anybody came to the church. I thought, that Geneva gown, that's mine for the taking. Talk about an inheritance. I said, look at this gown. And as I said, I, I, I put out my hand and touched it, and the moths had got there before me the whole thing disintegrated before my very eyes. I wasn't really thinking of stealing it. But that's what our inheritances are, aren't they? It's what we possess, you know. It's why we take out insurance. You ever noticed how few insurance companies go bankrupt? That means, just in case arithmetic's not your strong point, we give them more money for looking after our things than they spend taking care of our things. With apologies to those of you who work for Prudential. But you see this one. This he says. This he says. It's, it's, it's actually poetic. He says it's imperishable. It's undefiled. And it's unfading. Um, but uh, can, can nobody break in and steal what about the evil one? Peter, you're going to tell me four chapters later on, chapter 5, that someone's going around seeking to, seeking to devour my inheritance. Oh, no, he says it's kept. It's on reserve in heaven. God's got his hand on it. Don't you dare touch this, Satan. Don't you dare touch this. I am keeping this for her. But then me, poor me. You know, if, 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 you were, if you were... I still remember somebody saying to me when I was a week old Christian, that is in W-E-E-K, and how long you've been a Christian. I mean, I just felt, I'm so small. How can I say when I'm a weak old Christian, well, I was a weak young Christian, if you follow me, how can I say... I am a real Christian. I'm so frail. And so Peter says, listen, nothing can possibly destroy the inheritance. Nobody can ever steal the inheritance. And not only that, but you for whom God has guaranteed the inheritance are being kept by his power through faith. Not without faith. You know what you want to say? You want to say, God, keep me by your power, but do it without my faith. But uh, that would turn you into a robot, wouldn't it? He wants to keep you by his power through faith for this inheritance that is there for us to be revealed at the last time. And one final word. He says it's ready. Those very weeks I was reaching out to touch that Geneva gown. I had a landlady in the place I was staying. And she used to call me for breakfast at 8 o'clock every morning in her craft. And it sounded like a sergeant major. Your breakfast ready! <laughs> you know, she'd been preparing it. And that's what he means. He's saying it's just ready for you. He's keeping it for you, and it's already ready, and it's really ready, and it's just for you. And you see, when that begins to happen, our eyes are lifted away from our own weakness, and and isn't it true too that the world begins to look differently? we felt so weak, but now this strengthens us. The world seemed so big, but now we're actually looking at it through the right end of the telescope and it's beginning to look small. And he's saying, grasp this, dear Christians, and even although you experience different kinds of trial, you will rejoice. You know, wouldn't that be one of the simplest forms of us being witnesses in this mega complaining world that we were those strange people in this mega complaining society in which we live? What gets you? Why are you rejoicing when things are so bad? Ah, things are worse than you thought, my friend. But there is good news in this gospel. Well, may we be encouraged to live knowing that these are our privileges. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have blessed us with these spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, that you love us as a father, that you're not the mean and twisted father that we have sometimes suspected you were, but a generous father. And you know as you want to grow us in a a difficult field, you know our struggles, but you have given us privileges that far outweigh our struggles and far outweigh the obstacles in our way. And we pray that you would help us to, to fix our eyes on what you have done for us and given to us. When the road is rough and steep, Help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.